Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Join us today in welcoming Kate Boyce on the podcast. She's the co-founder of the Instagram and webpage Endo Girls Blog, which is a page that provides accurate information to people with endometriosis. Kate is a board-certified patient advocate and endometriosis patient herself. Today, I invited Kate on the show because this is the beginning of a mini-series that we're doing over several episodes where on the podcast, I, along with other guests, are going to talk about things like the guidelines as well as the standard of care worldwide. Today, Kate and I are going to talk about what endometriosis guidelines are, who they're for, how they're formed, what data is used to put them together, and more. The focus of today's episode is on the ACOG guidelines here in the United States, but we do also mention the European and Australian guidelines just for some comparative purposes. Please join me in welcoming Kate to the show, and I hope that this gives us a better understanding of what the endometriosis guidelines are and how they affect our care. Hi, Kate. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Amy. I'm super happy to be here. I was thinking we could start by introducing ourselves. So my name is Amy. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm the co-host of this podcast. I'm Kate. My pronouns are she and her. I am a board-certified patient advocate, and I co-run at Endo Girls Blog, a platform for advocacy and education about endometriosis. Today, we're here with Kate because we want to talk about endometriosis education and the standard of care. So often on this podcast, we talk about the misinformation that we receive from doctors, from social media, from internet, from well-intentioned endometriosis advocates and doctors themselves. There's so much misinformation and myths around endometriosis. There is such a good way to describe it is a chaos in our standard of care. And the standard of care is not the same from doctor to doctor, from city to city, or even from country to country, which when you think about it is pretty ridiculous. Often on this podcast, we talk about how doctors lack general basic knowledge on endometriosis. And there's many reasons for that, that we've gone over in the past. But today with Kate, we wanted to address a more bird's eye view of why there is so much misinformation on endometriosis and why we are not receiving the care that we deserve and that we need. Part of this stems from what we talked about in our episode on excision, at least here in the United States, we talked about the lack of insurance codes for proper reimbursement for excision surgery. We also spoke about how endometriosis really truly needs to be its own subspecialty. And we also talked about how so much of the research that are underlying these core ideas about endometriosis treatment is based on flawed methodologies, studies with limitations, 
research on mice, influence from the incorrect and outdated idea that endometriosis is from retrograde menstruation. So since we've already talked about those issues at great length in other episodes, today we want to talk with Kate about the endometriosis guidelines, which really set the standard of care and that doctors are using, basing their care for us on these guidelines. First, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, Kate, is what are the endometriosis guidelines? Will you talk a little bit more about them? Absolutely. So I think it's important to recognize that as a whole in the medical community, there are what are called clinical practice guidelines. So these guidelines are developed so that we have a systematic method for various different specialties to follow when a patient presents with specific symptoms. So typically these guidelines are based on the best available research, based upon large clinical trials, And then they do include expert opinion as well. Fortunately, in these clinical guidelines, they do specify whether their suggestions do come from specific research, clinical trials, and then they do specify also if they are just based upon expert opinion and consensus amongst these experts. These are not guidelines created by any kind of government body. They are created by third parties and usually the governing bodies of the specific specialty in which they're designed for. So for example, in the United States, the endometriosis guidelines were designed by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. We simply call that ACOG. And so they get together and they look at, they essentially do a meta-analysis. They look, they do a systematic review of the best available data. They put that together and create these guidelines. An easy way to think of these guidelines is kind of like a template and a process for doctors to follow when a patient presents with certain symptoms. Yeah, I have in front of me, let's see, it says ACOG, and then they say their information is designed to aid practitioners in making decisions about appropriate obstetric and gynecological care. So you mentioned that here in the United States, the endometriosis guidelines are set by ACOG. Now, who sets guidelines in other parts of the world? Is there just one set of guidelines for endometriosis or are there multiple? No, there are a variety of different governing bodies that create guidelines for endometriosis across the world. And when I say governing bodies, I don't mean, you know, actual government. I mean, organizations that oversee the care of variety of gynecological conditions. So As we know, endometriosis is not actually primarily just a gynecological condition, but that is where it falls when it comes to clinical guidelines. So these guidelines vary immensely around the world, and they seem to all utilize a little bit of different data. They are allowed to pick and choose what they would like to refer to when they make these guidelines. So that's why we see a large variety in suggestions. And it's also important to note that they're not all created at the same time. So for example, the one, you know, the ACOG guidelines in the United States, they have not been updated since 2010, whereas in Europe, they were recently revised in 2022. It's just embarrassing how the ACOG guidelines have not been updated since 2010. Like it's actually (laughs) embarrassing. A lot has changed in the endometriosis world. Since 2010, we've had new medications come out, we've had technological advances, and we have had 
a lot more surgical, specialized surgical training. So I wanted to mention the names of a couple of guidelines that have come out recently that are being talked about in the endometriosis sphere. The European guidelines, uh, for example, are called European Society of Human Reproduction and Embryology, and they're abbreviated ESHRE, which I'm just going to call a share because I don't know if they're called a share or they're called like ESHRE, but that is a tongue twister to say the acronyms. So they developed a guideline in 2022, as Kate said, with the idea that these are clinical recommendations to improve the quality of healthcare delivery within the European field. Recently, we also had the Australian Clinical Practice Guidelines for the Diagnosis and Management of Endometriosis. Those came out in 2021 under RANSCOG, which is the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And like Kate said, we know that endometriosis is not a gynecological condition, but unfortunately it is still stuck in the land of gynecology. But what would really help is that endometriosis is made its own subspecialty. And instead of you know, going and, okay, well, let's go to a gynecologist. Like, let's go directly to an endometriosis specialist. But that is something we've harped on many times and that we are, you're waiting to happen with bated breath. We're going to be waiting who knows how long. So we've established that there are different guidelines worldwide. I actually don't know how many guidelines there are. There's at least nine guidelines that I know of, and I'm sure there are other guidelines worldwide that, you know, we just haven't researched into. So there's like, I would say at least a dozen different guidelines on endometriosis. And interestingly, they're all different, which we're going to talk about later on in this episode. So I guess, Kate, would you explain a little bit further in detail about how do they find the evidence? Because all the guidelines are supposed to be based on scientific evidence, or as you said, in the lack of evidence, the, the consensus of the expert opinion. But Talking for a minute about the scientific evidence, how do they find the evidence for the different guidelines? So when you look at these clinical guidelines, they actually do list out the different levels of evidence and they explain where that information was obtained. So for example, in the ACOG clinical guidelines, you'll see um, a level of evidence considered level one, and that evidence is obtained from at least one properly designed randomized control trial. So these are those, you know, you hear about clinical trials that are happening and you can join them if you'd like, and they're double blind placebo, which means that they're, they're very well controlled studies so that we can properly analyze what is occurring with a medication or a treatment modality based upon considering the potential placebo effects. So this is kind of considered top level evidence, right? So this is considered if we, we look at these trials, we see the outcomes, we look at the data of that, that can be considered top level evidence utilized in these clinical guidelines. And you go further down the list, you'll see that there's a level two. And then this is considered evidence obtained from well-designed controlled trials, but there's not randomization. So, so these controlled studies that don't account for randomization, what they're not doing then is assigning patients to treatment and control groups. So they're assuming that each participant has an equal chance of being assigned to any group. When we're not accounting for the randomization, 
the reason why it's not such a great level of evidence is because that's not necessarily what you would see like quote in the wild, right? Like that's not what we would see in a regular population. (laughs) So randomization eliminates accidental bias, including selection bias and provides a base for allowing the use of probability theory. So I can see how randomization is really important because it can, it tries to delete all those biases from the research and leave you with like a very objective research that potentially could be extrapolated to the greater population. Right. And that's the point of that probability theory, right? So then we can apply probability and statistics to it. And like you said, we can extrapolate then to the general population. So when you move down the list of evidence, you'll see there is then level two evidence. And within that level two, there are three subsets. So level two dash one, for example, that's when you get the evidence obtained from well-designed controlled trials without randomization. When you go down to level two dash two, that is evidence obtained from well-designed cohort or case control analytic studies, preferably from more than one center or research group. So these well-designed cohort or case control analytic studies, these are observational studies where the investigator does not intervene. They rather simply observe and assess the strength of the relationship between an exposure and a disease variable. So one example of this could be so a potential for blood clots and individuals who take birth control pills. So while we may be able to observe that there could be an increase in people who are on birth control and blood clots, we don't actually have, you know, hard data from a clinical trial on that. It's simply an observation and it's not accounting for other external factors that may be contributing to the risk of blood clots. When you go down to evidence level 2-3, that is evidence obtained from multiple time series with or without the intervention. Dramatic results in uncontrolled experiments also could be regarded as this type of evidence. So moving on to, you know, level three, that's where you get your opinions of respected authorities based on clinical experience, descriptive studies, or reports of expert committees. So this is considered, you know, the lower level of evidence because we don't have hard data on this. This is mostly observational or just opinions based on observations in the clinic. So when you're looking through the guidelines, they will specify level A, level B, level C, Um, Level A are those recommendations that are based on good and consistent scientific evidence that would be like listed above um, one. Level B are the recommendations that are based on limited or inconsistent scientific evidence that would be like level two. And then level C, the recommendations are based primarily on consensus and expert opinion. That is where you'll see your level threes. I think it's interesting and also important that they do rank the evidence available because, as we know, not all studies are equal. Um, Not all studies have good methodology. Not all studies, you know, as you said, there's the properly designed randomized controlled trials, so the RCT, and that's pretty much considered, my understanding is that it's considered like the gold standard of research within evidence-based medicine. So that would make sense that you know, if we had a properly designed randomized controlled trial, that they would give a lot of weight to that versus like, you know, a well-designed study without randomization, which you said was like the level 2-1 evidence or like a time series, which was the level 2-3 evidence. So, you know, it makes sense that they're basically trying to find the 
best evidence and base the guidelines off of the best evidence available. But I think a problem with that, you know, all of the guidelines say something similar. So you just went over the ACOG guidelines and the evidence that they have available. Thank you for outlining that. The ASHARE guidelines, the European guidelines, they state something very similar. You know, they're also looking for these systematic reviews and meta-analyses. And then if none are found, they actually go to the randomized controlled trials. Oh my goodness. Interesting that ACOG's level one evidence was the randomized controlled trials and a share the European guidelines are like, first we do systematic reviews and meta-analyses. Could you tell us, Kate, what is a systematic review and meta-analysis? So when you look at these analysis, essentially what they're doing is they are already going through and looking at all of the published data that is available. So they'll often do like keyword searches. So for example, when they're looking for evidence on endometriosis, they'll just do like a search for publications containing the word endometriosis, for example, or diagnostics or, you know, diagnosing endometriosis, endometriosis treatment. And they'll go through and then they will have a set of parameters in which they think are important to follow. So they will go through and exclude certain studies or publications that don't address exactly what they're trying to find. And they are supposed to also go through and look at the methodology of each of these publications, and they should be discarding them based on a variety of issues with the methodology. So unfortunately, what we get into there with the systematic reviews and meta-analysis is they're only as good as the research and publications that are chosen. And unfortunately, you are still going to get personal bias involved, involved in this. There could be keywords that were left out. And not everybody could be in agreement with whether or not the methodology was sufficient. I actually have a great example of this. I was reading the European guidelines to, that talked about using post-hormonal suppression to try to reduce the rates of endometriosis recurrence. And I noticed that they continued to reference a meta-analysis that was done in like, I think it was 2020 or 2021. So I was like, let me go look at that because they referenced it multiple times. So I was like, let me go look at it. And it was indeed a meta-analysis. And I thought it was interesting when I read about, this is to give an example of how the structure of meta-analysis work, as you just explained. But they basically, like you said, they did a keyword search. I don't remember what it was, but it was like endometriosis, recurrence, endometrioma, various words. Anyways, they found like a bunch of studies. They found just like a bunch, like a lot, like dozens and dozens of studies. And then they went through and then they got rid of studies that they thought, you know, didn't have good methodology that didn't meet what they were looking for. So in the studies that people had, I believe they had to have started some kind of hormonal suppression within six weeks after surgery. So they didn't take studies where it was like, this person started three days after surgery and this person started six months after surgery. Cause that would be really hard to compare the studies. And then they also look for studies that had a follow-up for at least one year or more. So they just had like very specific parameters of what fits their inclusion data so that they could try to compare the different studies and then try to draw conclusions from studies that were very similar. Because I think it's great when we can find one study that has good information, but oftentimes there are conflicting studies. There are studies that are done with very similar methodology that may find 
a totally different outcome that conflicts with the outcome of the first study. So meta-analyses are really good because then they take and they're like, look, within these 20 studies that all had a similar, obviously they're different, but like a similar research design, they had these outcomes. And I thought that study was interesting because they did a lot of, and of course I'm not a scientist or a person who does statistics, but I thought it was interesting because they ran the studies through like different like statistical analyses. For example, when we get rid of the studies that, you know, started hormones four weeks after, and we just look at the ones that did six weeks after, we still get this outcome. Or when we look at the studies that only use progestins and not like all the different types of hormones, GnRH, birth control, et cetera, this is the outcome that we get. So I thought it was cool because they tried to run like different analyses to see if the outcomes were different by taking out GnRH drugs or taking out, you know, oral contraceptive pills. So Again, I'm not a scientist, but that's just an example of a meta-analysis that I saw. Then that made it made sense to me as like, they basically do the work for you. But as you said, it depends who the people, what are they pulling? Did they find all the studies? Are they actually doing the statistics correctly? So there can be limitations and flaws even within the meta-analyses. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. And even within those meta-analysis and those systematic reviews, it's still important to go through and check their statistical analysis, right? So it's very easy and convenient to just potentially read an abstract, even an introduction, and then jump down to the conclusions. Unfortunately, that's actually kind of the least important part of the research. The most important part are looking at those methodologies and looking at that statistical analysis. So but that's incredibly difficult for the general population, right? So I wish that we could we could hand out these publications and say, all right, you should just believe this. But the unfortunate reality is that, you know, we do need external individuals that can evaluate this data. And you don't always get that when you get a group of individuals creating clinical guidelines because they tend to all be from a similar cohort with similar belief systems. For example, in the United States, though, we do have a government agency that can at the request of a group of individuals that can go in and independently evaluate those clinical guidelines. However, it's not easy to get that done, but if there are genuine concerns about those guidelines, there are external organizations that can go in and do even further analysis to see if if they were correct in generating those clinical guidelines and if they were correct in utilizing the evidence that they used. So it's really important, you know, that we have these checks and balances. It's when we just throw out guidelines or assume that the proper research was utilized, you know, then we can fall into an echo chamber of information and we we lose sight of the fact that humans are more than just guidelines, right? And so there's great work out there that doesn't necessarily fit the bill to be included in guidelines, um, understandably. But when you look at them and you look at the methodology and you look at that statistical analysis, you can, and you see recurrent themes, it is worth taking into consideration. Maybe they shouldn't be clinical guidelines, but I think it's important for providers, you know, to understand that 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 data does exist and that data is there. It's really hard to read research studies. I'm certainly not a scientist, but I have taken a layperson stab at reading studies at times for the podcast. And it's just, it's so complex. And something that I've noticed is that, you know, especially when a study in so many studies, they like reference other publications. So they'll be like, oh, they'll just put a one liner, like this study from this researcher, these researchers found X. 
And then you're like, oh, wow. And, but instead of taking that at face value, you have to actually like go find that study that they're taking that one concluding sentence from. And then you go look at that study and you're like, okay, that was done in mice. Or when I actually read that study, I can see that they're using a definition of recurrence of endometriosis that is not based on visualization or histopathology, but that is based on like recurrence of pain. In the research, there's a lot of studies on endometriosis recurrence, but many of those studies are actually done. They consider endometriosis recurrence in their study to be recurrence of symptoms, which they then assume is recurrence of actual endometriosis lesions, but they haven't actually seen like on an ultrasound that there's an endometrioma or on an MRI, or they haven't actually done like a surgical second look to actually see. So it's like, oh, my pain symptoms are back. Oh, you have endometriosis recurrence. So it's like really hard. You have to follow the rabbit hole. And I've certainly spent like hours and hours and hours following different rabbit holes of different studies to just be like, I feel like I don't even know where I started. Like, I don't even know why I'm on like study number 10, looking at like some random thing that apparently appears to have nothing to do with what I started, but every study like referenced a different study. And when you finally like get to the source, you're like, oh, actually I wouldn't trust this study. So I'm going to throw the sentence out. And I thought something that was really interesting was, you know, in the study that I just mentioned, and I'm just using that study I just mentioned on the recurrence of endo because I literally just read it. So it's fresh in my mind, but I thought it was interesting because they acknowledged some limitations of their meta-analysis was that first of all, what we said that different studies use different definitions of recurrence of endometriosis. So some use the definition that, oh, we see an endometrioma on an ultrasound and some use this like clinical symptoms, like, oh, my pain is back. So they called that recurrence, which for me, those are totally different things because we know that not all like the return of pain symptoms after surgery doesn't necessarily mean that your endometriosis lesions have recurred. Something else I noticed was some of the studies were looking at general endometriosis recurrence, like any type of endo, superficial endometrioma or deep infiltrating, but some were only focused on endometrioma because endometrioma is a lot easier to see on the ultrasound. Then other studies that in their meta-analysis, like some were done on GnRH drugs, some were done on progestin, some were done on oral contraceptive pills. Another thing is that some of the studies did not have clear descriptions of whether or not the surgery was ablation or excision, whether or not the surgery was complete, like if it was a complete excision, some of the studies had incomplete excisions. So I was like, how can you do a study on recurrence if you have incomplete excision, which means you have endometriosis left behind, which means you have persistent endometriosis. And some of the studies were really old. You know, some of them were like 30 years old. And as Kate, you said, like laparoscopic technology for endometriosis visualization has drastically improved since then. And that helps the more the surgeon can visualize, the more endometriosis the surgeon can remove. So those are just some examples of like how, when we're looking at studies, there's different limitations, methodologies, in this case, types of hormones. There were different follow-up time periods. Some followed up a year after, some followed up three years after. Those are big time differences for me. 
Yeah. When you're looking at the research and you're digging back, you know, you'll, you'll find a, a statement or a claim and then you go to that source and then you keep going back, back, back. And eventually you can find, you know, the original source of that statement. And it's often, you know, based on, like we said, maybe a trial done with mice, which we know is not representative of real endometriosis, right? That is just uterine tissue that is transplanted back into that mouse and the abdominal cavity. So it's not true endometriosis. So the data on that, even though, you know, it'll be presented in later publications as legitimate study or legitimate outcomes, um, when you look deep enough in, you realize it's not. And some of the information, especially when it comes to drugs, what's really fascinating is, so for example, there's one medication. If you go back far enough, you will see that the original publication was actually retracted. And that's incredibly important to realize because that kind of nullifies all of that information to begin with. And if you didn't know that that article had been later retracted because it methodologies were later found to be invalid. So everything is so varied when it comes to the research. So it's really hard to find, you know, especially with endometriosis. I mean, we have a hard time even properly defining this disease. So if we can't even like find a consensus really on a definition, it's, it's hard to find a consensus on how to even treat it. So we've got other conditions and diseases where I think the clinical guidelines and the research is, is super solid. It is repeatable. We see it over and over again. And I, I definitely respect clinical guidelines except when it comes to endometriosis, it's just a little bit more difficult because the disease is so incredibly variable. And like you were saying, you know, recurrence of endometriomas is not going to be the same as recurrence of endometriosis, right? Endometriosis lesions when properly excised have a much lower recurrence rates than endometriomas. But sometimes when you look at the literature, the endometrioma will be considered general endometriosis. So you have to really dig into that because people will say, well, they'll be like, well, my endometriosis recurred super fast. And this study says that that's common. Well, it was actually looking at endometriomas, not just regular endometriosis lesions. Another issue I see when it comes to looking at recurrence rates with excision surgery is that you actually, it's unfortunate, but you actually do have to spend the time looking into who actually did the surgery, right? So we already don't know necessarily the exact type of technique that was utilized in the surgery, but Excision surgery is also only as good as the surgeon and their training. So it's actually necessary to look into the exact surgeon to see what their surgical skill is, right? Are they performing high volume? Are they a part of a high volume center for treating endometriosis? Or are they an OBGYN that has just done a fellowship, a minimally invasive gynecological surgery fellowship? where they do get a little bit of additional training in surgery, but they're still not considered an actual true expert in endometriosis excision. So you're likely going to see a higher recurrence rate in a surgeon like that than you would a surgeon that is part of a high volume endometriosis center where they're conducting multiple surgeries per week rather than maybe one endometriosis surgery a week or maybe only a couple of months, right? So that's a, it's a really critical component of looking at this research. And it gets really convoluted. It's really difficult. And so, you know, we want to be able to look at these clinical guidelines and be like, oh, yep, they looked at all the best available data, but even that best available data isn't the best, right? And um, they still can pick and choose. And the statistical analysis is where that gets really, really important, but it's dull. It's not fun to look at. Yeah. And our three-part 
series on excision, we actually talked at great length for like four straight hours, over three episodes, I want to add. But basically the premise of the episode was that not all excision surgery is equal because it's highly operator dependent. And I remember we even looked at a really interesting study that they took one surgeon and they looked at the surgeon's first 30 cases on doing, I can't remember what, I think it was deep infiltrating endometriosis in the bowel, but I, I can't remember. But basically looked at his first 30 cases for the endometriosis surgery and the recurrence rates. And then they looked at the next 30 cases. So case one through 30 of the same surgeon compared to case 30 through 60. The title was something like, does the learning curve of, you know, learning how to do surgery impact the recurrence rate? And the study suggests that yes, as the surgeon is gaining more skill, doing more complete excision, they're having lower recurrence rates. And I just thought that was really interesting. And a great example of what you said is that when we look at these studies on excision and other things, a lot of times we just, we don't know the skill of the, of the surgeon who's doing those studies. So we just don't know if it was complete or not complete. And we don't have this other expert or a second pair of eyes looking over at the end of the surgery and being like, oh, okay, you got it all this, you know, this passes the test or it's like, we, we just don't know if, and what was left behind. So we've established that studies can have variables. It can be hard to know what studies are good studies. Quickly, I just wanted to say that, as you said, the the different governing bodies when they make the guidelines, they pick and choose what they feel is appropriate to base the evidence on. So for example, with ACOG here in the United States, they it says that they looked at the Medline database, the Cochrane Library, and the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists' own internal resources and documents. And that was, was used to conduct a literature search to locate relevant articles published between 1985 and 2010. Because we know the ACOG has not been updated since 2010. So their, their research is coming from 1985 to 2010. It looks like in the European guidelines with a share it says they perform literature searches and they looked at the systemic reviews and meta-analyses. And then if no results were found, the search was extended to randomized controlled trials and further to cohort studies and case reports following the hierarchy of levels of evidence. And then for example, with the Australian guidelines that came out in 2021, it says that these guidelines draw on the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence or the NIS guideline from 2017. And it says this guideline was developed using a partial adaptation process approach based on grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluation methods. The National Institute for Health and Care Excellent Guideline NG73 Endometriosis Diagnosis and Management was selected as the reference guideline. Systematic literature reviews examined recent evidence to October 2019, and additional topics not covered in the NICE guideline. So as we see, three different guidelines are each conducting their own reviews of the literature or basing on previous guidelines and picking and choosing a, like what they see fit. And this is one of the reasons why when we 
look at a comparison of the guidelines, they're not all recommending the same treatments. And I think this is some of the reasons why we see discrepancies in the guidelines is that the guidelines are basing their evidence. First of all, the guidelines were made at different times. They're using different sets of evidence. And to give an example, let's take excision surgery. ACOG gives no recommendation on excision, while ASHER, the European guidelines, say the level of evidence for excision is a C, and that's actually based on the ASHER 2014 guidelines. The SOGC, or the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada, they say that the evidence level of excision is an A, and the ASRM, which is the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, in their guidelines, they give no information about evidence. So it's just astounding that we can take something like excision surgery, and we know in the new guidelines for ASHARE 2022, they said excision has a weak recommendation. So it just astounds me that it's excision surgery, and yet various guidelines have different assessments of the treatment itself and the level of evidence for the treatment. Another thing with the guidelines to remember is that they are put together by subcommittees. So within ACOG, you have a committee that will focus on obstetrics. You've got a committee that'll focus on gynecology. And then within those realms, you have further broken down committees. So you'll have, you know, the committee that works on the endometriosis guidelines. Additionally, the members that are working on those guidelines, they don't have to be endometriosis experts, right? So there are certain requirements for each committee. So they want, you know, OBGYNs that have been practicing for a certain amount of years. They want new OBGYNs. They actually do include two public members. So they get a wide variety of opinions when it comes to making these guidelines, which causes a lot of variability as well. So they're not just, it's not just a consensus of endometriosis experts. Like I think some people may think, right. So it's just a committee within ACOG and then those committees, um, they don't stay the same, right. So it's not like they have this position that they're in for five years and they continue that work. It's just a rotating kind of think of it as like a requirement for being a part of an organization, right. You have to do your pay your dues and part of your dues may be one year sitting on a committee where they are going to be working on the endometriosis guidelines. So, you know, it's kind of also randomized in that respect as well, which I think, I think it's good in ways, in some ways to have an outside perspective, but at the same time, I wish there was more of a focus with actual endometriosis, you know, surgeons and actual endometriosis specialists with their ability to understand the surgical data even more. So I think surgery gets left out a lot because, you know, it's hard to find what they would consider their level one evidence on endometriosis surgery. So they just kind of see these, these trials that just show any kind of surgery was done for endometriosis. And then there's high recurrence and, you know, they're not well-designed trials. So they're just kind of like listed as lower level evidence for treatment for endometriosis. Whereas it's a lot easier to do a controlled clinical trial for medication, right? Like that's significantly easier than conducting surgical trials. I think some of the issues is that first of all, oftentimes surgery is lumped together. So you look at studies and they'll compare surgery to hormones and it's like, what surgery, what 
Was it ablation or was it excision? And was it expert done surgery by a high volume physician or was it just surgery done by a physician that does not have as much experience in excising endometriosis? So I also think that, you know, we know there is evidence that excision is the gold standard, but I think a big problem is that we don't have that evidence in the randomized control trials. And that's what these studies are looking for. They're looking for these well-designed randomized controlled trials to compare excision to ablation or compare excision to hormones. And we just don't have that kind of data because a lot of the doctors, the doctors who are doing excision day in and day out, who have these incredible skills that we should be aspiring to teach (laughs) to the other, to like the rest of the surgeons, like the top-notch skills that we should be aspiring to base our care on, they're busy. They're busy operating in the operating room. You know, they're, they don't have time to do the academic research and do the publications because they have a full patient load and they're operating endometriosis every single day. So I think that's another thing that plays into it is that we know that excision is the gold standard for endometriosis treatment, but it's very frustrating because we don't see that reflected in the guidelines. You know, the ACOG 2010 guidelines, they do not even have a recommendation on excision. The only mention of excision in the guidelines is that excision of an endometrioma is superior to ablation of an endometrioma. So I think that's great. Like, that's great that they recognize that and and put that in the guidelines. And then there's a mention of, you know, the removal of endometriosis if a person is considering a hysterectomy. And and those are the two instances um, that I'm aware of of excision being mentioned in the guidelines. So it's also really hard because it's like, if you have these guidelines where excision is not being mentioned and then surgeons are not, excision surgeons are not getting a seat at the table, then of course, it's what we always say, like, you know, nothing about us without us, right? It's like, you know, patients are not getting a seat at the table. Our interests are not getting a seat at the table, like excision surgery. We have so many recommendations for hormones and hormones. It's like, let's please let's explore other avenues. But unfortunately, these, these quote unquote experts who are making the guidelines, the consensus groups, the expert opinions, the members of these um, working groups making the guidelines, I just feel like the interests of the patients are not being represented. And it's not that the evidence is not there. It's just not there in the form that the guidelines are looking for. Yeah, I think you summarize that really well. It kind of gives an overall picture of what's going on with these clinical guidelines, what they're looking at, what they're not looking at, what could be dismissed. And, you know, maybe the keyword search was wrong. <laughs> maybe great data was missed because of a keyword missing from it. So, but I mean, if you do go do, you know, a basic Google Scholar search and you type in endometriosis excision, you get over like 34,000 results. And if you want to bring it closer to today, if you do like since 2021, you get 3,200. What's interesting about endometriosis excision that I think we also need to address that doesn't get really looked at with the clinical guidelines today is how endometriosis has been excised for decades, right? It only changed to being cauterized or ablated 
with the development of laparoscopic surgery. So, and I think that might be one of the reasons some of the really good data on excision doesn't get looked at is because we don't really do open surgeries anymore, right? Laparotomies are very uncommon. They're looking at, you know, the effectiveness of a laparoscopic surgery, and we're not really taking into consideration that not nearly as many OBGYNs or surgeons are capable of doing that complex resection or excision of lesions when they're doing the minimally invasive technique, right? It's harder. They're looking through a couple little holes and they're trying to manipulate tools that way. Whereas before with an open, open surgery with laparotomy, it was a lot easier for the surgeons to go in and precisely cut out the tissue. So we do have, you know, we've got old school, great data showing, you know, success of excision surgery. The issue is that we're just doing it in a different way now. And it's harder for surgeons to master that skill. And of course that information, we see it for the disease itself and its effectiveness, but it isn't included in current data because nobody's really doing the open surgery anymore, right? The technique itself is, is still great and exceptional for the excision part, but it's just much harder skill to master the way that they're doing it now. So it's kind of a situation where an advancement in technology kind of set us back a little bit in, in the endometriosis world. But I mean, if you go through and you do a basic search of endometriosis excision, you get tens of thousands of articles that could potentially, you know, be useful. But I think that instead of excision, maybe they're just typing in endometriosis surgery or endometriosis laparoscopy. On the CEC website, they actually have a really great page, which talks about laparoscopic excision of endometriosis. And then they have all of these studies listed. And it's really great because they even put like the year that the study came out. So they have studies from 2022, then they have 2021, you know, 2020, 2019, and going back through the literature and they just have links and a little bit of a, like a, like an abstract or a blurb about what the study is about, but just like evidence for excision being the gold standard and showing that excision surgery leads to generally to improved outcome in the majority of patients. And, you know, I think when I look at the share guidelines, I mean, even in the part of excision, it says here, they have a section, section 2.3.b says ablation versus excision of endometriosis. And then they said they looked at a systematic review and meta-analysis identified three randomized controlled trials comparing excision with ablation of endometriosis. So they found three and then they excluded one because of incomplete data. So then they did a meta-analysis of the other two randomized controlled trials. They actually say they showed that laparoscopic excision was significantly superior to ablation and reducing symptoms of the EHP, I think that's the endometriosis health profile, 30, core pain score, dyskesia, and chronic pelvic pain. So there is data out there. I mean, even in the ASHARE guidelines, they recognize that there's data out there, but I think that there's more data out there, but it's not the data that they're including in the guidelines, because as we saw in the guidelines, like they just looked at the randomized controlled trials. And yes, randomized controlled trials, as we said earlier, are like the gold standard of research. But it's just, it's frustrating because it's not just this like 
oh, let's just talk academically about these guidelines. And okay, we want to use the quote unquote best research that that they find, because as we said, they could miss research, right? So yes, they want to make scientific guidelines. And like, I, I get that. I get that they, they, for all these guidelines, they put together a group of people that they considered were good people who represented different healthcare parties to, to put together these guidelines and look for the evidence. But the problem with these guidelines is that these guidelines guide care. That's why they're called guidelines. They're guiding the care that we are getting as endometriosis patients. And unfortunately, the care that we are getting is abysmal. The care that we are getting is subpar. I think it's great that Asher says there's a recommendation for excision. The recommendation is weak. Personally, I don't think it's weak, but that's what they found. They found that there's a weak recommendation, but like, hey, you know what? It's there. That's great. I mean, I'm, I'm happy at least that excision has been recognized and that it's recommended. But what I'm not happy about is like, it doesn't translate into anything in actual practice, you know? Okay. So if excision has this recommendation, even if the recommendation is weak, why aren't we training more surgeons in excision? Why aren't we giving referrals to excision surgery centers? Like, it's just very frustrating that there are these guidelines and I don't know. It's like when clinicians use these guidelines, it's this kind of like pick and choose what fits me. At least that's what it feels like to me, you know, because there could be guidelines, but here's the thing is that in order to do excision, people need skills. Surgeons need to be trained. They need skills. If surgeons are not getting trained and not getting the skills, then they can't do excision. Even if it is a recommendation, if they don't know how to do excision. So while the guidelines serve their purpose to guide the practitioners without implementation of certain aspects of the guidelines, I think it's just easy for practitioners to fall back on, okay, you're presenting in the clinic with symptoms of endometriosis. Let's give you hormones because pretty much anyone can prescribe a hormone to their patients. You know, so it's it's not just about guidelines, the bigger bird's eye view is like, it's about guidelines and how they make the guidelines, but it's also about how can the guidelines actually be implemented. And the sad story is that we know there's, if even a couple of hundred surgeons who can properly do excision, we need training for that. And I would love to see, and I don't think this is going to happen. I know that share guidelines only came out in 2022. It would be great if, you know, then governing bodies in Europe were like, oh, wow, a weak recommendation. Yes, it's weak, but hey, it is a recommendation of excision. Let's train more surgeons in excision. Like, let's get that ball rolling. Um, not sure if we're actually going to see that, but that would be the that would be the pipe dream. Absolutely, we we all want that. And what's interesting is that there's actually a lot of good clinical trial data on surgery coming out of Europe. Seems to be particularly from Italy. I see a lot of supporting work for, you know, the excision of endometriosis. One of the best works was on their excision of bowel endometriosis. You know, I think they came back with a average of like a 7% recurrence rate on, you know, bowel endometriosis when they excised it with expert skills. So I, you know, I, I love to share that publication. The methodology is fantastic. The statistical analysis on it is great. It's incredibly thorough and it's just a, it's a publication that I wish was taking into consideration just a little bit more. And I do want to clarify, you know, when it comes to these guidelines, like so far in the United States, for example, our National Institute of Health explicitly states 
These guidelines are not fixed protocols that must be followed, but are intended for healthcare professionals and providers to consider. While they identify and describe generally recommended courses of intervention, they are not presented as a substitute for the advice of a physician or other knowledgeable healthcare professional or provider. So if somebody is an expert within their field, they are well within their rights to actually not utilize any of these clinical guidelines that they see, right? So, you know, a lot of our expert excision surgeons, they don't you know, they don't apply all of these guidelines. I think some of the basic ones at the beginning, everybody kind of agrees with, right? You know, patient presents with painful periods, they're young, let's see if birth control helps. I think that's pretty much a consensus, right? Because we're not going to just jump into surgery. But it gets when it gets into the more advanced stages of endometriosis or the the patients presenting with, you know, a multitude of symptoms, I think then it it requires a much more like specialized look rather than just a regular OBGYN trying to follow these guidelines. You know, it's, it also takes humility on the provider's end to say, you know, this is beyond my, <laughs> beyond my expertise. And maybe let's find you somebody that understands all of the ins and outs of what's really occurring here beyond what even the guidelines can provide. When the ASHARE guidelines came out, you had, you did a live an Instagram live with a couple of surgeons and with Heather Widone from the Center for Endometriosis Care. And one of the main points that was talked about in that Instagram live was just how these guidelines could be helpful for endometriosis experts, for endometriosis specialists who are actual true specialists who know what they're doing, who know how to treat endometriosis, who know how to take into account the different nuances of the patient, but also who are able to offer the different treatment or management options from excision to hormonal management. But the problem is that these guidelines are in the hands of gynecologists who are just general OBGYNs who are not experts, but the guidelines are designed for them. So, you know, it'd be great if the gynecologist could say, wow, you know what, endometriosis, I'm not an expert in that. I don't know how to treat that. But the problem is that these guidelines, they seem to quote unquote empower, they make it seem like they're empowering the gynecologist to be able to treat endometriosis because they just go and they have their guideline. You know, they look at their ACOG guideline here in the United States and they're like, oh, okay. ACOG says, you know, first line treatment is hormones. Second line treatment is um, GnRH drugs. Okay. Patients not responding to those things. Patients just, you know, still having their symptoms. Okay. Ooh, we can move on to an additional treatment, a definitive treatment of hysterectomy and removal of the lesions. So it's like the guidelines, their purpose is to help clinicians and, and doctors treat the patients. The guidelines don't say at the top, but they should say these guidelines are, should only be used in the hands of actual endometriosis experts who know what the heck they're doing but instead they're given out to all the gynecologists and it's like, Hey, you're a gynecologist. Now you got some practice bulletin points on how to treat endometriosis. A lot of them are, you know, off base and we don't even mention excision in there, but I mention it, you can't do it anyway. So here's your guidelines. Okay. <laughs> Go have fun. <laughs> Understandably as patients, we're frustrated because we're not getting care from the doctors that we go to. And of course, a whole patient dismissal and gaslighting is a totally, you know, separate issue that definitely needs to be addressed. But in terms of doctors, I think they really do think they know what they're doing. 
you know, they read these guidelines. I'm like, I'm just following the guidelines. Of course, the guidelines would be accurate. Of course, the guidelines would make sense. Why would I question the guidelines that are coming from ACOG? Like, why would I question that? You know, in doing some research for this episode, I was looking into the ACOG guidelines and some of the movements and the campaigns that have come up over the years to try to change the guidelines here in the United States. And back in 2017, there was really great work on the part of several advocates, including Casey Berna and the Center for Endometriosis Care, Heather Guidon, and many other advocates. And they came together to make a petition to ACOG that had more than 8,000 signatures. I didn't see the whole petition. I just saw some pictures on social media and some excerpts of the petition, but it was really well done. And it had a lot of different people talking, just little quotes from them about the kind of care that they received for endometriosis from their gynecologists, just like stuff that we've all experienced, really shocking stuff getting dismissed or you know, getting just like told that that was normal or getting told there was nothing that there could be done for them. And so it was this really well put together petition to try to get ACOG to change the guidelines. Heather Guidon from the Center for Endometriosis Care worked in in conjunction with others to rewrite the guidelines, submit rewritten guidelines to ACOG with so much evidence. As we know, the Center for Endometriosis Care, their website is so evidence-based. It is such a great website chock full of scientific research. They are so wonderful. Not only are they leading excision surgeons in the world, but they are also very strong advocates for the endometriosis community. So this really well done, well put together petition, they even marched on Washington to the ACOG headquarters in 2018. There was a little bit of press coverage. So you're like, Ooh, where did all that, you know, 8,000 person signed petition two day protest at the ACOG headquarters in Washington. What did that come to? Nothing at all from ACOG. Surprise. I found this quote in an article online. It it was a news article about the protest and it's called better guidelines needed on endometriosis patients say. Protesters bring their fight to ACOG headquarters. This was written by Joyce Frieden, news editor, MedPage Today, April 6, 2018. And so Heather Guidon from the CEC said in this article, quote, of the 50,000 OBGYNs that ACOG represents, about 125 to 150 are true endometriosis specialists. Their interests are not represented. That speaks to the larger problem that ACOG is supposedly responsible for training of the best healthcare providers in the world, but they're not training on endometriosis. It gets a 15 to 20 minute mention in medical school, and that's the end of it, end quote. And then Dr. Hal Hal Lawrence III, who was the CEO of ACOG at the time, he disagreed and he said, quote, I ran a residency program for 15 years, and I served on the committee that reviews residency programs. I can tell you that endometriosis is a very significant gynecological condition that all residents are trained in and about. So they know the symptoms, how to diagnose it, and how to treat it, end quote. And that's just, that's, that's where we stand. And that's just really blows my mind because we can see these problems are so much higher up than the doctors themselves, the guidelines. It's this idea that, 
yes, ACOG is training their doctors to treat endometriosis. If they're training the doctors to treat endometriosis, why are there not any recommendations on excision in the guideline as if excision doesn't exist except to excise an endometrioma? You know, so it's just, it's so deep and it's so infuriating and it is so mind boggling. And it really speaks to why we just cannot get better care. I really like how you point out that, you know, it, it's important that we're not just like blaming the doctors or the, or the surgeons, or even the people who are making the guidelines, you know, it's this very top down issue that we're facing. So I think it's important that we all keep that in mind when we're thinking about this situation, because it's easy to get, it's easy to start the blame game. Right. And so I really like that, you know, at the end of the day, we have to acknowledge that this is a big, big situation and it's important to take it all in and all aspects of it and do our best to look at it objectively. Yeah. And it's not even the president of ACOG in this instance. It's just, that's a representation of the idea that all these non-endometriosis experts really, they really truly think that they know how to treat endometriosis and that they've had and that they give adequate training. It's like, I don't know what we need to do to make doctors realize that we are not getting adequate care. We know we're not getting adequate care because we're living it in our lives every single day. But what do we need to do to get the doctors and the the governing bodies and the healthcare system at large to understand that we are being sorely neglected within medical care? And I wanted to bring up a quote from Heather Guidon in the CEC. You know, it's been four years five years actually since the petition and since the uh, four years since the march on the ACOG headquarters, there's still no action from ACOG to update the practice bulletin or to improve the standard of and the access to quality care for endometriosis. And I know that the CEC have been continually advocating behind the scenes to try to get those changes made. And I just want to like give a huge shout out and thank you to them and to everyone else who has been involved, big or small, in trying to update the standard of care. But to give a quote from their social media in regards to this campaign, which had a hashtag called We Matter ACOG, which is so fitting because we matter, but it feels like we don't matter. In regards to why they advocate, the CEC said, quote, because nothing has changed in 30 plus years, because there is no patient-centered care without patient engagement. Because for far too long, the systemic and institutional disregard for endometriosis has shaped the policies for the disease without allowing involvement by the specialist community and the individuals they serve. Because industry bias and backroom favoritism should have no role in informing treatment protocols and guidelines. Because lack of knowledge and failure to embrace modern concepts by those who decide reimbursement structures causes significant barriers to quality care. Because the millions of individuals suffering from endometriosis in the United States deserve better now. Because we matter ACOG. So before we end, Kate, I was wondering, could you speak a little bit to, in this quote from the CEC, they said, industry bias, backroom favoritism. Can you speak a little bit about bias that we could potentially see in the guidelines or in our endometriosis care? In almost any industry, there's going to be bias from any kind of external source that are stakeholders, right? So bias can always be introduced by stakeholders, external external sources. So one of the most common 
sources of that that we see is at least in the endometriosis realm are either if we have pharmaceutical companies that will fund research, we've got pharmaceutical companies and their consultants that work on endometriosis research. Many of the physicians are consultants for these companies. And while there's nothing inherently bad about that, it always introduces the possibility of bias, right? As much as we can try our best to not be biased and to always be objective, it can be extremely difficult, right? When there's any kind of financial influence externally. So, and especially if that's a, if that's a realm you're, you're always exposed to, if that's something you're dedicating your life to research in, you know, if those are the people that you're always around and that's the information you're hearing as a human, we, we are just going to naturally potentially present a form of bias. And so I think it's incredibly important that we have people, you know, involved in these, in these guidelines or, you know, just involved in the research who don't have um, a lot of these potential sources of bias. So there's a reason why you look at, you know, the funding of a publication or a clinical trial and they'll say there's no conflict of interest or they are required to disclose what the conflict of interest is. And they're required to disclose that because it is an important factor, right? And it is something that I think is important to take into consideration when you're reading any kind of research or you're considering any information that's being presented to you by anybody. I know for myself that if I go to a provider and they seem to be heavily pushing one type of treatment, I will go then to look into, you know, in the United States, we have the Sunshine Act for this exact reason. So I can look into that further and say, look for myself to see if there's a conflict of interest there. And if there is, then I can, you know, for myself, I can take that into consideration and decide whether or not that's something that is important to me. And I want to either continue to see that provider or not. Or if I see that, you know, research is funded by a specific company, I may dig in a little bit deeper to look at the methodology, right? So it's not an inherently bad thing, but it's something that's important to consider just because bias is natural and it's going to happen. You know, I think everybody has their own bias, right? So excision surgery was extraordinarily successful for me. So I am biased toward wanting everybody to have a successful excision surgery as much as, you know, I want to be, and this is actually one of the hardest parts of being a patient advocate is I had to learn that it's not my job to tell somebody what kind of treatment to get based on my opinion or my bias. But my role is to essentially help guide them in making sure that they have all the appropriate information and that they know what all of their options are. So it's important for me, you know, in that professional capacity to keep that bias under control. Um, And that was something I had to learn how to actively do, right? I always, I watch my words, even if it works in person, I watch my body language. I'm really wild with my facial expressions. So I try not to you know, do an eye roll when I, you know, say that something might be an option for treatment for an individual. So it's something that I take very seriously. I think it is valid and important to always consider potential conflict of interest and bias. And we do see it a lot in industry and we see it a lot with these governing bodies that, you know, they rely on external funding. And so it's just always an important factor to consider. Actually, we have a fun, not fun, but a really, I would say intense episode coming up on pharmaceutical companies and the different way that their bias can seep into research, seep into patient advocacy group, seep into what's called key opinion leaders. 
where they have physicians who are usually respected and influential in their fields who get recruited by pharmaceutical companies to influence peers as part of a marketing strategy. There's all kinds of ways that bias can seep into our care, our guidelines, our standard of care. And we're actually going to have a whole episode coming up talking about all this different research because there is so much research that has been done on how pharmaceutical company in particular, because it is very prevalent and it doesn't just happen in endometriosis, it, it happens in all care worldwide. And luckily there is a lot of research and investigative reporting and reports and studies done on that. So we are going to go over that in great detail. It's going to be so much fun. Actually, it's going to be horrifying. <laughs> it's like, it's fascinating though. And it feels like when you learn about it, you're like, is this conspiracy theory stuff? And then it's like, no, this is real. This is like real stuff. And there's like thousands of page reports and like books and books. And anyway, so we're going to go into more detail on that. Kate, I really want to thank you for coming on the show today because I have been following you for a long time on Instagram. And I think that you are a board certified patient advocate and you really have a pulse on what's going on in the endometriosis world. And you put up very educational posts scientifically based with a lot of research. You put your sources. So a lot of times I actually see something that you post and I'm like, Ooh, let me go read those research articles up in the sources. And then I get ideas for the podcast or for my own posts. So first, I just really want to thank you for caring so much about the endometriosis community. Of course, I know that you're a person with endometriosis yourself. I really just can't tell you how much I respect you and appreciate your dedication to the endometriosis community and trying to get scientific research out there, but also trying to help us lay people like myself understand about scientific research. And I feel like in our episode today, it's just really, it's an important episode because we talk often about the standard of care and how poor the standard of care is. But I think not many of us are aware of the issues like up the chain, you know, the guidelines, problems with the guidelines, how the guidelines are formed, the problems that could have with methodologies and limitations and studies. So much of science seems like, oh, okay, it's science and there's scientific evidence, but it's so much more nuanced than that. I do think it is difficult to make guidelines and to take those conclusions from studies and like try to extrapolate them to the general population. And I also think it must be hard for practitioners to as we said, they're not experts in endometriosis. So they're given these guidelines. I'm like, oh, okay, this is what I, this is what I follow. This is, this is how I treat endometriosis. So it's just really nice to have a breakdown of all of that so that we can understand what we always talk about, that there's so much flawed information with endometriosis care, but there are great people out there doing great work and definitely want to recommend to check out the CEC website, look at those studies on excision as the gold standard. And to always do our own research because there's just so much more information that goes so much deeper than a lot of the superficial research or explanations that we're presented with, like on websites or from our doctors. Thank you, Amy. That's very sweet. It's very kind. I can always rely on you to provide accurate information for the community as well. I know that you love to deep dive into the data. I know that you love to deep dive into the research. And so I can always trust that you've done your part before sharing information. And I would go on to say that you, um, you sometimes present it in a more neutral way than I do. So <laughs> my dedication to the endometriosis community can sometimes get a little bit 
a little bit intense. So it's something that I'm incredibly passionate about. I've dedicated my life to, as you understand, you know, we, we spend so many of us spend our, almost our entire life battling this. And, you know, I, I, but I also like to point out that no matter when somebody's journey with endometriosis begins, doesn't make it any less traumatic. And so it's hard to navigate a disease that you never know when is going to start for an individual. So, you know, that's something that I'm incredibly passionate about is helping anybody, you know, navigate their way through this disease, no matter where they are. And a lot of people get forgotten because they don't present with traditional symptoms. A lot of people get forgotten because it is considered a gynecological disease. So I think one of my main goals when I educate is to make sure that, you know, the community understands that this is not just a a gynecological disease. This affects so many people. And I think we can get, you know, the sooner we get it out of that gynecology realm, I think the sooner we can get better guidelines, the sooner we can get better education, the sooner we can get better surgical skills in this disease. So I appreciate you so much for letting me come on to your podcast, believing in me and my dedication to this disease. And I just, I have to point out that as always, Heather Goudon is my greatest influence in this. So she's one of my, and she's from the CEC. Yes. Heather Guadone is a, a coordinator for the CEC, the Center for Endometriosis Care, and also a board certified patient advocate. And she's been one of the most influential people in my, in my path towards, you know, helping others with endometriosis. So I never knew that the platform that I started just a few years ago would ever become what it is today by just sharing my experience and trying to help others get proper care, but I'm glad it has. And every time that, you know, I help somebody get to a proper surgeon and even any kind of pain relief from endometriosis or they're heard, it feels like a success to me. 